We've already sang this morning the Christmas carol that really just asks the question that's appropriate to begin with. The, the song says, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? It begins with a, a question, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? You know, when you think about the Christmas season, when you think about the, the birth of Christ, really the ultimate question not only from the word of God, but even that Christmas carol is, what child is this? I mean, the truth would be that if you answer that question correctly, it is to know the greatest truth in all of the world. If you can answer that question biblically and know that truth in reality in your own life, it is to know the greatest truth in all of the world. To trust him as your savior, we know from the word of God, is to enter into eternal life now, John 17, three, and then one day into the eternal glory of the presence of God where there is love, joy, peace forever. Who is this child who determines the eternal destiny of every human who has ever lived or will live and whoever has been born and will be born. Who is that child? Well, nearly 2,000 years ago, eternal God, creator of the universe, sustainer of the universe, still a wonder of wonders for me after preaching for over 30 of year, the years to think that the creator and the sustainer of the universe took on flesh. And to look at that, I want us to turn this morning to, to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2, and I want us to refresh our hearts just briefly again with our Lord's birth. Clearly, in all of the gospels, I think Luke's is the most expressive of the birth account of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I thought rather than drilling down in a paragraph allow me to cover an entire unit of thought, namely Luke 2, verses 1, all the way down through 20. I think some of you will think that will be a miracle if I could do that many verses in one setting. That's my, my goal. And so with that, I want to keep us flying high, if you will, flying at 40,000 feet. We're going to touch on the truce here, but I want to make sure that we see it all together because I believe at the end of it, just as we sang, behold our God, it will focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that is our ultimate goal even this day. Luke chapter 2. What you have in Luke chapter 2 is he records, at least in those opening 20 verses, three amazing testimonies that provide a powerful confirmation as to the identity of the child. There's three testimonies. The testimonies are that of Luke, the gospel writer, the testimony of the angel of the Lord, and then I could even say the angels. So you've got the testimony of Luke, you've got the testimony of the angel of the Lord, and you have the testimony of the shepherds. 
But in looking at those testimonies, those testimonies give glory to the one whom Christmas is all about, and it's all about Christ. So even the characters that are displayed in these opening 20 verses of Luke 2 are pointing to the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born on Christmas Day. And I think you're going to see that these testimonies of Luke, as well as the angel of the Lord, as well as the shepherds, demand a response. Let me just drill down a little bit more just to see the big picture, and then we'll go ahead and dive into it. First, what Luke does is he gives an historical introduction. In other words, he just introduces to us historically, might even say prophetically, introduces the birth of Christ, and that's in chapter 2, 1 through 7. And that introduction points us to a fulfilled prophecy. Secondly, the angel of the Lord gives a theological revelation. In other words, he's going to say something about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Namely, that he's a savior. Namely, that he's Christ. Namely, that he's the Lord. And so you have the angel's theological revelation that points to his person. Then thirdly, the shepherds will just call it practical application. In other words, they see the child, leave that scene, and go to Mary and Joseph, and they just give application, and they praise God. They give praise to the one who was born. So that's where we're going. Let's dive into the account. I chose it just to read it as we walk through it. Let's look first at Luke's historical introduction. Look at the text with me. You follow along. I'll read 2, 1 through 7 to begin. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There's the text. There is the text. Luke begins with a decree. It's interesting. And you say, well, why does he begin with a decree? Because I I think he wants us to see that this happened in history. And what's fascinating about the opening section in here in this introduction is Caesar Augustus gave a decree, and he obviously did it. There's a couple of reasons, maybe to to number those in what could be uh, just his kingdom and under his kingdom, but I really think he did it for tax purposes. And so as he gives that decree, it moves Mary and Joseph, if you have a map, which is quite a long way to go on a donkey, if you will, on some kind of mule or some kind of beast that would take him there. It moves Mary and Joseph 80 miles from Nazareth to the city of Bethlehem. In other words, this is a historical event. 
doesn't say here in the text, but it's common knowledge that many scholars believe that Mary was probably 13 or 14, Joseph maybe around the age of 15, and they were to go to that town, Bethlehem, the city of David, and register their name. They were to register their occupation. They were to register their property. They were to register their family, if you will, into the Roman IRS agency for the purpose of taxation. Now, we know that when we read that, we know that that's why Caesar Augustus gave that decree, but there's far more there. Little did Caesar know that they were actually carrying out the sovereign plan of God in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you, how do you know they were carrying out the sovereign plan of God? Well, there's a prophet, a prophet by the name of Micah. And 700 years previous to the birth of Christ, Micah foretold that the Messiah's birth was to take place in the city of Bethlehem. I was just there last year. You're expecting to go through it and see something marvelous, something miraculous. And it's not so much as you go through the city that you see that. In fact, it's a very common city. It's a very, you move through the city and you're thinking he was, he was born in this place. But they were moved there. But Micah, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, over 700 years to this event, said this in Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphtha, that's just the region, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel. And in this statement, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem exactly as God prophesied. And so here, even in this text, and this historical introduction, is the providential work of God in a very insignificant town 700 years prior to the birth of the Messiah. Really, it's an amazing truth. Because here, how did Caesar know? He's just, I'm going to give a decree. And the decree goes out. And they get on that beast, if you will, on that burden that would carry them. And it carries Mary and Joseph 80 miles. Now, the text says, you'll notice there, it's interesting. It says, and Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David. They're actually going south. But if where you were and you went south, it would actually carry you up into that place. And so here, from the very beginning, Luke wants you to understand in this historical introduction that Caesar is ruling the world, but God is overruling all actions by his providential care. It's an amazing text. When I, when I mention that word providence, what we mean by that. What we mean in theology by that is that God is orchestrating all contingencies, all thoughts, all actions to affect exactly what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants, where he wants. And that's what he did here. Caesar gives a decree. 
Joseph must go. She's nine months pregnant. He puts her on some kind of transportation and they go 80 miles, if you will, south to get them there for the census. It's interesting that the text says of this ruler in Micah 5.2, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. I think it's the NASB that says from long ago, from the days of eternity. So beloved, a ruler would be born in Bethlehem who has been alive forever. He is an eternal being. And here in this text, to move him from Nazareth to this city, Bethlehem, is the fulfillment of prophecy. And Luke wants you to see that. So there's something miraculous even in that historical introduction. And yet at the same time, there was little fanfare when our Lord arrived on the scene. In fact, God identified with us in one of the humblest ways possible. It was a very ordinary birth. Obviously, the implications are profound, but it was a very ordinary birth. In fact, look at the text in verse 7. It just quietly but profoundly says, she gave birth to her firstborn son. I mean, that's it. A huge understatement. Mary then wrapped the baby in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger in an animal feeding trough. The text says that as we read, there was no room in the end. There was no hint of any kind of insensitive rude innkeeper, doesn't say that. In fact, probably what you have here is whatever you think about an inn, don't think Holiday Inn, don't think Courtyard Marriott, it's none of that. It was a little place where travelers would come, usually a very small arena where they would kind of a, sometimes even in a circle where you can sleep on the outside of the walls and then on the inside there would be a stall, there would be a, would be a stable. In fact, it doesn't say necessarily that they were in a stall, doesn't necessarily say that they were in a stable, and sorry, it doesn't necessarily say that there were animals there maybe to whatever you might think. Now, we think that because, truthfully, he was laid in a manger. A manger was his first crib. And the mention of the manger is why many assume that Christ was born in a stable, but it's nowhere stated as such that animals were on the scene. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Um, that, That was a great gift wrapped, wasn't it? I mean, we carefully, meticulously, some of you would wrap those gifts. Imagine Mary wrapping the baby Jesus. She would take these long strips of cloth and they would, the, a mother would wrap his arms, they would wrap the legs of that child, they would wrap and, uh, if you will, to keep tight that body, and it was for warmth, it was for security, and I think I would just tell you that, that that's what she did, because she treated the baby like any other baby. In fact, physically, he looked like any other child, There's no royal robe there that is given to him. There's no fancy clothing. He came out, if you will, beloved, like everyone else. 
There's no halo on his head. And the utter contrast between the birth's simplicity and the child's greatness could not be great greater. Mary would labor, think about this, mothers, with no comfort, with no doctors, with no nurses, with no pain relief, with no mother by her side, with no family. She's probably 13 or 14 years of age, and all that's there is her 15-year-old fiancé, Joseph, whom they were betrothed together to help. And at the culmination of the labor, she pushes out the Son of God. But all the text says there is she gave birth to her firstborn son. So, beloved, I would say to you that nobody realized that creator God of the universe just entered into the world in human form. I mean, it staggers me even today that the creator of the world condescended, if you will, took on flesh in the incarnation and came in human form. It is really an unthinkable entrance into the world for God's son. Sweat and pain and coldness and possibly, frankly, just to be honest with you, manure and straw and stench. But I think what Luke wants us to see is that though Caesar Augustus sleeps, little did he know that the ultimate king has arrived on the scene, whom Micah says, whose coming forth is from old, whose coming forth is from eternity. So Luke points us to a historical introduction that fulfilled prophecy of Christ's birth. And so who knew that? Who knew the reality of that? Oh, not many, but he fulfilled prophecy. But it gives way to a second character in the text. And the character is the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord gives a theological revelation. Look at the text in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I mean, the angel of the Lord appeared. Now, we read this and we become familiar with it, but did you know that nobody had seen an angel in over 500 years, biblically? You get from the closing of the book of the Old Testament, closing of the Old Testament, all the way here to the birth of Christ, no one had seen an angel in four to 500 years. And then all of a sudden in the Gospels, they're appearing. An angel of the Lord appeared in chapter 1 to Zacharias in the temple. Then in chapter 1 as well, the angel appeared to Mary. 
Then an angel appeared, the angel of the Lord, to Joseph in a dream. And now this angel comes in chapter 2 to shepherds. And there's much to be said on shepherds. They were not particularly respected in the day, and I thought it is of the Lord that he came to them. It is of the Lord that he who was infinitely rich became poor for our sake, that we might become rich through him. And then when he comes, the angel appears not to the religious elite, not to the politically elite. He appears to a group of nobodies. He appears to a group of shepherds to announce the greatest news ever. In fact, the other earlier parts of the gospel, Gabriel appeared to Zacharias. Then even Gabriel, the angel, appears to Mary. This angel of the Lord that we just read about, I suppose, could have been Gabriel. But these shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks. And the angel of the Lord just suddenly appears. In fact... Watch what happened. Look at verse 9. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to them. I like that, the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone all around them. I mean, I just would have loved to be on that hillside. The glory of the Lord shone all around them. Beloved, that is just a significant Statement. What, what does that mean? The glory of the Lord shone all around them. There were the shepherds keeping their flocks, as it says, uh, by night, and the angel of the Lord just suddenly appeared. In other words, God's going to move into the situation. And then there is a glory that it says there shone all around them. Often when you see the glory of God, the glory of God is an attribute of God. And I've shared this with you a little bit. What is the glory of God? I mean, I think you would say something about the love of God. You would say something about the forgiveness of God. You would say something about the mercy of God. You could tell me something about the wrath of God. But when we speak of the glory of God, Sometimes we, we get stopped. What is the glory of the Lord? Why does it say there in the text that the glory of the Lord shone all around them? I think the best way to look at the glory of God is the glory of God is a picture of all of the attributes of God combined. In other words, if you were to take all of God, all of his character, all of his attributes, which by the way are infinite, and you put them into a statement, they would be glorious. He is, the Old Testament says, a God of glory. So when you think about the glory of the Lord, what is that? It is, beloved, a physical manifestation of the presence of God. In other words, God, we know from John 4, doesn't have flesh and bones like we do. And often in the Old Testament, when God would appear to people, when his presence would be known, when his manifestation would be known, he would come down in the form of a brilliant light. That light came down in the Garden of Eden when he was walking in the cool of the day. In Exodus 40, when they erected the, the tabernacle, 
It says when they finished that, and he gave them all the instructions for that, it said that the glory of God came down so that the priest could not minister. In other words, what was the glory? It was a cloud. It was a light. What does it represent? It represents the physical manifestation of God with his people. In fact, later on, when the temple was built, when they built that wonder of the known world at that point, and when Solomon was dedicating that temple, there again, that glory came back. That glory cloud came back, and once again, it filled the temple. What was it? It was a light. It was a brilliant light. It was a bright light, and it was the presence and the manifestation of God, Sadly, you remember in the book of uh, Ezekiel where Israel began to sin as a nation. And then in Ezekiel 8 and 10, the glory of God would begin to depart from the temple. It moved from inside the temple to hovering over the temple, then to above the mountain. And then finally, that glory cloud left. What left? The presence of God left amongst his people because of their sin. And then no one saw that glory probably until this point here. The glory came back. And what it was is it says there, the glory of the Lord shone around them. What was it? That night on that hillside, it was the presence of God came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If just for a moment, if you can think about that brilliant light, and of course, this was the glory when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he peeled back his humanness in Matthew 17, and he revealed to his disciples the glory that was inside him. They fell on their faces. It was so bright. But that night, this starry night, can you imagine the hills of Bethlehem? It became an amphitheater for the greatest light show in all of human history. The sky just exploded with glory. It exploded with light. The text says that the glory of the Lord shone all around them. The manifestation of God's presence among them. Think about this angelic revelation or this angel of the Lord's revelation. It was given to a ragtag group of shepherds. It's a portrait of the grace of God to nobody and to the nobodies. And as that glory shone, look at the text in verse 9. It says that they were filled with what? Fear. They were terrified. And yet, beloved, if you know the scripture, this really doesn't surprise us, whenever somebody encountered the presence of God, far from carrying on a conversation with them, they fell on their face like a dead man. When Isaiah was confronted with the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 1, he said, woe is me. He fell down in utter revulsion of who he was in comparison to the holiness of God. When Ezekiel encountered the presence of God in Ezekiel chapter 1, he fell on his face. John the apostle, when he was on the island of Patmos, when he turned and beheld on the Lord's day and he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ in Revelation 1, he became like a dead man. This is always the account of the scripture. And so they were terrified, but look what the angel said to them in verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not. I love that. You say, well, how would you not fear that? 
because they're in the presence of God. The light was shining around them, but terror gave way to one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible. Look at verse 10. The angel said, for behold, I bring you good news. I love that statement. Of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Now, many believe that that all the people is a reference there to Israel, and I think that would be no doubt correct. It is a reference often when it speaks of people to the people of Israel. But if you will, look down in chapter 2, verse 30. For my eyes have seen here later that day in verse, uh, where was I? Uh, he took up, let's say, 228. He took up in the arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to my word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. So he goes from people in, in the earlier text to peoples, plural. And then 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So both are found. So he said, fear not, and here's why it's good news, is born that day, beloved, is a savior, three titles, who is Christ, Messiah, who is also Lord, he's Kyrios, Lord in the Greek. Here is the angel of the Lord's revelation. He says, the one who has been born is the savior. Beloved, it is an understatement to say that is the greatest news the world has ever heard, ever, ever will hear. He is a Savior. A Savior was born. Beloved, that is the meaning of Christmas. God sent a Savior. He did not send an action hero. He sent a Savior to meet our deepest need a savior to deliver us from judgment, a savior to deliver us from wrath, a savior to deliver us even from our own sin that we spoke about two weeks ago. Maybe if you're here and you're thinking, what and who is this child? Well, the child who was born, the angel gives by way of declaration and here by way of revelation, it is the savior a savior, even in the Old Testament, was a title for God. But if you look back, look back in Luke chapter 1. It's not the first time we've seen that. Do you remember when Mary broke out in praise? The mother of our Lord in chapter 1 in verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my, what? Savior, Mary knew that the one that she gave birth to, to some understanding, was not only God, but he was also my Savior. And so that title, Savior, used in the Old Testament for God, is now a title for the Lord Jesus Christ in his birth. And so though his physical birth didn't come for, with any fanfare, He's been given that title and the revelation of the angel that he's a savior. You remember in Matthew's gospel in 121, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save 
his people from their sins. I mean, it is a miracle of all miracles that at the incarnation that the child was born, but that child would grow up and become the savior of the world and was even given that title as such, even in his birth, looking forward to the rest of the gospel accounts where he will live righteously and also die on the earth. First John 4, 14 John the Apostle said, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Do you know him even this morning as your Savior? Have you confessed him as Lord and Savior and placed all your faith in him? The one who was born that day not only fulfilled prophecy, But here, he's given the title to his person of being the Savior. And then look again in Luke chapter 2. Look at the text. Not only is he Savior, but in Luke chapter 2, it also says, who was born that day as a Savior, who is Christ, who is, the word is for Messiah. It's, It's the ideal of his kingship. And Christ fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament, every prophecy that spoke of the coming Son, that spoke of the coming Messiah, is now given by the angel of the Lord to these shepherds that the one who was born, that you should not fear, this is great news, and it's good news for all the people, all the peoples, plural, because today, born for you, is not only a savior, but the one who was Christ. And then look at the last title, the third title given to him there in that text, who was Christ, and then he's called the Lord. He is called, what does that mean? He's the sovereign one. In other words, he's the king of kings. In fact, in the Old Testament, uh, the Lord was used over six thousand times to represent the name of God. It is a title of deity. It is an affirmation of God's sovereign power and authority. And when it says that Jesus is Lord here, it is to say that Jesus is God. You are confessing him when you confess him as Lord to confess him as God. Let me say clearly that this is the most fundamental confession of Christianity that Jesus is Lord. You must believe that or you'd have to discount what the angel of the Lord is giving by way of revelation. He said, this is good news. Fear not for behold, the one who was born this day is, as it says here so clearly, that he is Christ the Lord, born to you as a savior. Ken prayed this morning, a savior to take away all your guilt, to take away all your sin. He's Christ to fulfill all your hopes of a future kingdom. He is Lord. He will defeat all of our enemies. Listen, beloved, if I could just take you back to that very day at this moment is the greatest moment in the history of the world. That baby in the manger was God himself. And so the Christmas carol that asked, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? No, the angel answers that. 
It's the Savior, Christ the Lord. Do you know him as such? You know, it's just, it was a wonder of wonders as I prepared this week. If you can fathom this, that Mary, as probably, let's just say she's 14, is cradling deity. She is cradling the Lord of the universe. She is cradling her own creator and her own savior and the savior, if you will, to the world. It is a wonderful statement. So Luke gives a historical introduction. Then the angel of the Lord gives theological revelation. He's Christ. He's the Savior. He's Lord. You say, well, what happened after that? Look at the text in verse 13. And suddenly, there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Suddenly there was with the angels multitude of heavenly host. What a picture. At that moment, all heaven broke loose in praise. The angel of the Lord is joined by a multitude of angels. Have you ever just kind of went back there in your mind? You say, well, how many? Well, we, we don't know. What, what we do know is he was joined there. There was, an, with the angels, a multitude of heavenly hosts. We don't know how many. I, I know that in the Bible, it says in the book of Revelation, in 5, when they were around the throne at the, at the end of the world, it says that there were myriads. Do you remember that statement? And myriads. And that language there is the highest number in the Greek language in Revelation 5.11. And it could be that John was writing here when he talks about the multitude of heavenly hosts or even when he writes in the book of Revelation that he's writing myrion times myrion, thousands of thousands. Maybe he's writing in some type of hyperbole. Uh, it could be. All we know is we know that there was a great multitude. One scholar said this. He said that he believes that all the angelic host was there on the hillside. Can you imagine that scene? And what were they doing? They just kept praising God for the birth of Christ. The angels just kept saying glory to God. They say in the highest, the highest point. Glory to God into heaven. And so the humble beginning, if you will, laid in a manger, an animal's feeding trough, turned into an antiphony of praise. And not only were they praising God, but look at the text again in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, it's qualified, among those with whom he is pleased. In other words, with the recipients of his grace. With those who have received the grace of God, there's peace among men with whom he is pleased. So beloved, 
You say, well, what did the shepherds do from that point? Well, I take you from Luke's historical introduction, which pointed to prophecy, to the angel's theological revelation, which pointed to his person, and now to the shepherd's practical application. This is what it means for them and what it even means for us as well as it means praise. Look at the text in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds, you say, what would they do? Well, they said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, or it says in one translation, they went in a hurry, and someone said, there's the first Christmas rush there ever was. They, they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the holy, and excuse me, and the baby lying in a manger. And that seems to be the point of the sign. It's not the wrapping of the swaddling cloths. Every Jewish woman would do that to every baby. But what was the the sign was here that the baby was, verse 16, lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. In fact, look what happened to Mary. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. In other words, they were telling about the angelic revelation, the light show on the earth. But verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then here's the key. And the shepherds returned. This is important. Glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen as it had been told them. The shepherds went back and told everybody about this child. In fact, I don't really have time, but this seems to be Luke's refrain. Whenever somebody like Simeon in 2.28 took him in his arms, it says that he blessed God. In chapter 17 of Luke, the lepers, remember when he healed 10 of them? And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. The other nine were nowhere to be found, but this one came back, praising God and giving thanks. In Luke chapter 18, when the blind man was healed, he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. When you get to the triumphal entry in Luke 19, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Listen, you, you say, what's, what's my takeaway here? Is the shepherds went back praising God for all that they had seen and heard. They, not only did the angels leave, but it was real clear. They returned, verse 20, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Those worshipers became proclaimers. 
And really, I think to the point where this message touches our own heart is when we become a proclaimer of what we know to be true. Think about what Peter said to you, sitting here if you're in Christ, that you, 1 Peter 2.9, are a chosen race, that you are a royal priesthood. He said you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love that little line, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his light. Listen, maybe that's our desire for 2020, that the worshipers, the pursuers would become the proclaimers and that we would but open our mouth as the shepherds did out of all that they had heard and seen and went back glorifying God and glorifying God is synonymous here with praising God. We have a wonderful, merciful Savior who is Christ the Lord. In fact, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I love that, speaking of Christ. The King James says, thanks be to God for the unspeakable gift of his son. The Revised Standard Version says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We've been given a wonderful gift. Let me just encourage you, and I don't mean to ruin any kind, well, maybe I do. Um, Fathers, are you gathering your family on Christmas Day? Maybe some of you would say, oh, Scott, that's always part of the tradition. Praise the Lord, keep going. But listen, you fathers, if you, one of the ways you can do this is just to gather your children, to read them the story, maybe sing if someone has ability in your family, to sing to the Lord, but you need to become a worshiper. You need to become a proclaimer. You need to proclaim that. Maybe some of you will be with some unsaved family members, and if it's in your house, then they're in your house, and you get to pray, and I'll pray that you might have an opportunity to tell someone about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. These shepherds became proclaimers and praisers of all that God was in his son, and it becomes an example to us. But listen, whatever you do, make sure that the day doesn't come Make sure that maybe Christmas Eve doesn't come with some gathering of you, if you're a father, to lead your family in worship, because we, or lead your wife in worship, or you lead someone in worship, but whatever it is, this ought to be the refrain of our mouth for the unspeakable gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he who was so infinitely great became poor for our sake, that through his poverty we might become rich, and that one who was born, of course, would go on to die on the cross for us to redeem us and save us from our sins. We have much to be thankful for, don't we?